So this week, uh, we continue in Exodus. If you have a Bible, you can open to Exodus. And um, we're, we're talking about the way out. There's a pattern that emerges throughout Scripture where um, people find themselves in exile that actually begins in the very beginning of the book in Genesis chapter 3 as the very first man and woman are cast out of the garden and uh, their rebellion against God, the first exile event begins. And from there through the rest of God's story, we see a pattern of exile needing exodus, a, a way out, that people need a way out of their lives. So um, y'all been part of a, you ever been to an escape room? Anybody be, let's play. You can play at home too. Come, raise your hands. Come on, be proud of it. Does anybody find them kind of lame? Yeah. For the most part, I would say, I, I, in my experience, the escape rooms have been kind of lame. And so this past fall, Tim Bubar and I were with um, the Birchfields. The Birchfields are a, a family from Two Rivers Church in Berlin. And we were there um, learning about what, what's going on in the city there as Tim is transitioning into his discipleship pastor role last fall. And as we were there, um, it was their daughter's birthday, and they're like, hey, for her birthday, we're going to go do an escape room. And so um, they're like, do you want to come along? And we're like, well, yeah, we want to come along. We want to do whatever you're doing. But in the back of my mind, I'm like, okay, well, this is going to be lame, but I just want to be with them. So this is going to be great, right? It's going to be awesome. So we show up there, and they give us the whole brief, and they tell us what's going on. And the scenario is um, it's, it's their introductory room, and their introductory room is you're, you're in the 80s in the former East Berlin, and you are part of a plan to escape out of your apartment that you've been working on for a while, and now you're going to have a plan in order to break free to the West and freedom. So I'm like, okay, well, how cool is this going to be? So we, we're going down this hall, and there's nothing special about this building. You're now in this, this black, dingy kind of basement kind of room. And they're like, okay, we're going to open the door, and then you're going to be back in the 80s. So they open the door, and we walk into this apartment. And I felt like I just walked into an apartment in East Berlin in the 80s because it was really decorated like it was from the 60s and 70s, which would have been East Berlin in the 80s. I was like, whoa, it was like a time warp. And, and my immediately thing was like, this is cool, all right? There's nothing lame about this escape room. And then we started to do all the stuff that you do in escape rooms. If you've never done it, it's solving puzzles and coming up with codes and looking for clues along the way. And, and we end up coming to the point where, um, okay, there's, there's a bathroom and we finally got into the bathroom. And so now, wow, there's multiple rooms in this escape room. And most of the, in my previous experience, there's like one room, lamely decorated, and you could just try and get out of that room. But now we're in a second room and it's a bathroom and there's this door that's going to lead us out and we'll be able to make our way to freedom. But now we can't figure it out. And all of a sudden we're like, okay, somehow we got to get behind the toilet. How's this going to work? So we work the code and we do this stuff. And all of a sudden we pull out and the whole wall comes out and there's a tunnel. And so now we're in the tunnel. And I'm like, okay, this is starting to get a little bit of anxiety. If you're claustrophobic, you're in this tunnel and you're climbing through and you got to go to the other way and you end up in a store full of this 80s memorabilia and you end up making your way out through four different rooms. And I'm like, wow, that actually caused me just, just maybe a slight glimpse of, of, the, 
of the stress that would have been if I was somebody who was living in East Berlin and all I wanted was freedom, but there was this death zone, it was called, right? There was the, the, the thing that made the Berlin Wall so effective isn't that there was one wall, there were two walls. And if you found yourself between the two walls, you died. And so all of a sudden, I'm like, wow, I got a glimpse. Those people must have really, really wanted freedom. You see, the story of exile into the exodus is the story of the human condition. Today, humanity finds themselves in exile from God. That is what we're born into. We would call it spiritual death. We are a people who are born into exile in need of an exodus. That is our story. And ultimately, as followers of Jesus, we know that everything in the scriptures point us to Jesus. And so often in our lives, we just take the shortcut and go, well, I just want to end up in the New Testament because everything in scripture points me to Jesus. So that's all I really need to know is what does this look like for me to follow Jesus? Give me the New Testament. That's enough for me to follow Jesus and I'm good. But there's so much more to God's story. So as we continue in Exodus chapter 1, here's this weekend's takeaway. God's story is actively unfolding in a world opposed to God's people. This is the story in Genesis chapter 3 as the serpent comes to, to Adam and Eve and says, you can't trust God. When they choose rebellion on, the story from then on is the world is opposed to God's people. The world isn't just opposed to God. The world is opposed to God's people. True from the beginning, true to today. So guess what? Stop thinking that it's ever going to change or even hoping that it's ever going to change. It's never changed. It's always been real. And we're called to be followers of Jesus in the midst of that. These exile events that we see throughout scripture from Genesis chapter 3 onward, they, they set up a need for an exodus. What we see is exodus events from the opening of Genesis onward throughout God's story. Where God's people are, are in captivity, for us, we're in the bondage of sin. We, are, we find ourselves in a world in captivity, in the bondage of sin, in need of an exodus, a way out of that. Now, last week, if, if, if this is your first time at Two Rivers or you just weren't here last week, either way, we talked about something that's really important for us as we study the book of Exodus, really the Bible in general, but it's really important that we would understand how we read the Bible. In other words, if we're going to read the Bible as a textbook and we're just looking for facts or we're looking for the right answer to the test, we are going to be sorely disappointed. Because this book, first of all, isn't a book. It's 66 books that are written as literature. We talked about last week that the Bible is literature. And um, you know what? I'm sorry if you're not into reading. God gave us literature that we would know him. That's God's method. It's what he chose. And so God has revealed himself through writing. And there's different types of The word would be genre, different types of literature within the Bible. And it's important that we read the Bible understanding that it's different types of literature. And we talked about that the Exodus is um, 
It's a biblical narrative. For the most part, there's going to be some other stuff along the way, and we'll talk about it. There's some poetry. There's some uh, law code in it, but it's, it's a story. It's part of the grand story of the first five books of, uh, of the Bible that are unfolding the, the beginning of time through God selecting a people in order to be his rescue plan for the world that we talked about last week begins in in Genesis chapter 12 forward, we see that God's plan is unfolding, that he would restore humanity, that he would provide a way for humanity to be reconciled to himself. And the thing that we talked about is it's really important that as we read narrative, that we would read it like it's a story. And why do we read it like it's a story? Because it's a story. And it doesn't make sense for us to read a story not re- like it's a story. And so it's important that you would understand that, that, yes, we believe the events of the Exodus are historical events. And then you're going to go do your research and you're going to say, yes, but they've never found any archaeological evidence in Egypt that the Hebrew people ever were actually there. Somebody may give you that fact. They may just throw that out. How can you say those were actual historical events when they've never found any archaeological evidence? And the answer to that is no. No archaeological evidence has ever been found to prove that they were there. No archaeological evidence has ever been proved that they are not there. And one thing is true. The Egyptian people never told stories of their defeat. They never said, we got crushed. Shocking. And so there's, it's, it's inconclusive. And so we believe that these stories have endured because they are historical. And as we read it, though, we want to read it as a story because the story is more un, uh, power-packed, so to speak. Like there's more there than just the facts and the events. The story is even bigger than the facts and the events. So we could call it storied reading. And storied reading, a biblical narrative, helps us to know God relationally. The reason we want to read the Bible this way is it's about knowing the God of the story. Knowing God relationally. Not knowing about God. Not knowing facts. Not knowing information. It's about knowing God. Who is he and who's his character? You see, God's story is actively unfolding. And it's unfolding in a world from the beginning of time on that has been opposed to God's people. As we pick up, we're picking up where we left off last week in verse seven, where it says, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. That that we tied to Genesis chapter one, that they are living out the creation mandate, so to speak. They're living out God's instruction that they would experience the blessing of God. It's happening. Now, in your Bible, right? Or in your journal, write, in the, as we go into verse 8, write 400 plus years. Between verse 7, where we left off, and where we pick up this week, 400 years. Okay? Ish. 400 years have passed as we pick up in verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad." 
The Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work of the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra, the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the, he- to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Here we see what is true from the beginning of Genesis on. We see it reemerge here in the Exodus that that. God's story is actively unfolding in a world where there's opposition to God's people. So as we, as we read the story, we go, okay, we see that. But, but what does that mean for a follower of Jesus? And as we go through this series, we're going to observe things that we see in the text that are true about God, a, a principle that's true about God. But then our part is to go, okay, how then do we live as followers of Jesus in 2023 in light of this truth that we receive revealed through God's story? How then do we live? And as followers of Jesus, we need this. We need to live Okay, if you're a follower of Jesus, to live with your eyes open to the spiritual nature of the opposition. Live with our eyes open. The opposition is real. And we just spent a whole series going through Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus where we, we emphasized over and over and over again that there's a spiritual realm. And Paul is very clear through that whole letter that, that there's a spiritual realm, that what is happening isn't just here on earth. It's also in the, also in the heavenly spaces, that it's within the spiritual realm and, and that it is a, an ongoing active conflict between God's purposes and, and forces of darkness. That is playing out right here in the book of Exodus. We also need to remember, we used the phrase last week, theological story. Like maybe that's better for you. It's God's story. This is a God's story and, and it's revealing something about God, even though he hasn't really even show up on the scene yet. Like we, we're going to see even more as we move forward. But, but it's important that we would know that, that God is trying to show us something through this story. And there's also things that we need to know as background. So as we go throughout this series, what we're going to do, we're trying something new, and um, you're reading ahead. And so you, if you're doing the Live It Out, you covered what we're going to cover in, in a seven-week series. You covered by Wednesday of this past week, okay? If you were doing the reading every day, by Wednesday, you were through chapter four. And so now you're in material that we'll cover in the future in another series or maybe in another two series. And the importance, why? Why would I want to do that? Because it's important that we would understand the big story before we try and break it down to the parts. Often people do this inverted. When it comes to studying the Bible, we often go, okay, let me understand the parts. And we end up missing the big story. And and what ends up happening is 
we end up missing out on the God of the story. We're so breaking it down into the parts, we end up missing out on the grand narrative. The, the super cool theological term is the meta-narrative of Scripture. It's the grand story of God. And so what we want you to be reading for is the grand story of God. And so here, there's a king that arises, and this king who's called Pharaoh, um, and that name is not a name. Okay, what that is, that's a title, and uh, I've heard a couple different commentators describe it a couple different ways. It, it would be for us, if, if someone were to say the White House says, what would we think that that meant? We would say, well, that's the presidential administration. The presidential administration is equated with the White House. And so there's a king in Egypt, and his administration, right, is, is Pharaoh. That's the administration. But it became, so the king just became known as Pharaoh, and it's a title. Why is this important? Because we don't actually know which Pharaoh. He's unnamed. That's important. When we're reading the Bible like a story, unnamed characters are just as important as named characters. And here, why would Pharaoh remain unnamed? That's a question just for you to ponder. It's a question just for you to think about. It's a question just for you to put in your mind. Guess, guess what? There's no right answer there. Some of you are like, oh, this is going to stretch me. This is going to bend my mind. You're going to ask me questions and there's no right answer? Yeah. Jewish rabbis love this stuff. <laughs> they love to debate it. In the days in which Jesus lived, we see Jesus engage in this kind of debate all the time. Hey, what's the most important thing in the law, Jesus? That was a common question that they asked each other. What, what's the most important thing in all of God's instruction? What do you see? What do, what do you think is important? Is there a right answer? Well, Jesus gives the right answer, but... Is there a right answer to why is Pharaoh unnamed? No, there's not a right answer. Could it be something very significant? Think about it this week. Ponder it. And why are two midwives named? Could that be important? That we see in all this story, we see that, that two women emerge. Is it important that those characters are women? Isn't it important that, that they're going to kill all the males but allow the women to leave? And, and Pharaoh's plan, as we go into this next week, we'll see, is thwarted by the women. Is that important? We're going to see, yeah, that's important. You're not making stuff up when you observe that in God's story. So what is it that Pharaoh fears? And, and here's the thing. It's right in front of us. Pharaoh, what is it that Pharaoh fears? Pharaoh fears that if war breaks out, that there'll, there'll be an army that rises up from the Egyptian, uh, I mean, from the Israelite men, that they will fight the Egyptians with their enemies. And so if I kill all the men, there's no armies, that possibility's gone wrong. If it's, a, if it's elimination of a people group, you choose to kill the women, okay? If I kill all the women, there's no more babies, and, and that would be, if it's about genocide, that's the course. So this can't be about genocide. It's not about eliminating the Hebrew people. It's about keeping them enslaved and allowing them to, to keep being part of the grand plan of Pharaoh, which is that, that the Egyptian people would be successful, and if the Egyptian people are successful, then Pharaoh is successful, and if I have to choose between you or me, I'm choosing me every time. That's the human condition. 
what gets revealed here is the human heart. The human, human heart says, hey, if it's you or me, see you later. Good luck. If, if there's a bear chasing you and I, who's gonna, who's gonna, I'm going to trip you, and the bear's going to get you. That's the human condition. Okay? That's what's being revealed. And, and so, what, okay, as we import this mindset, okay, this is much closer to home than you think. It's this idea that there's not enough for all of humanity to be successful. There's only limited resources, and we have to choose. Egypt first. This should be striking really close to home. There's a problem with that mindset. There's a problem with a mindset that says, in order for our people to succeed, another people can't succeed. In order for our people to be successful, we have to keep another people oppressed. Now, as you're reading the Bible story, um, there's, there's key phrases. The Bible Project uses the, the phrase hyperlinks. I love that because um, hyperlinks are something that I use, right? So in, in my Bible software where there's a Bible passage and I go on the hyperlink, it brings it out. And I'm like, okay, I get hyperlinks. That, that in the story, it, there's hyperlinks used in key phrases, Often they get a little bit cloaked for us, so we need some help seeing. And so unless you, you've studied this, unless you are a, an absolute Old Testament guru, this isn't something that I, I would say you should be expected to see. So I want to point this out. And there's so much, by the way, in this text, that, that like a 60-minute lecture wouldn't cover all the stuff in this. One of the, the, the commentators that I listened to did a... Um, two-hour podcast on chapter one and wasn't even able to cover everything that's there. So I'm not using hyperbole to say we couldn't quite cover it all. But as you're reading, there's a key phrase, and it's important because it ties to this idea of exile, being a people in exile in need of an exodus. And it's this phrase at the end of verse 10 that says, come, let us. And that phrase actually ties the story back to Genesis chapter 11. And if you're really familiar with your Bible, that you would know Genesis chapter 11 is the story of Babylon and the Tower of Babel. That it's the story that there's a people who say, come, let us build for ourselves, right? Come, let us make bricks in Genesis chapter three, verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 3, and Genesis chapter 11, verse 4, come, let us build for ourselves a city. Let us make a name for ourselves. And what they are demonstrating is this common human condition of rebellion against God. So here the Exodus story ties us into the, the Babylon story and the Tower of Babel and what we're supposed to see, I believe what we're supposed to see is Egypt is the new Babel. This is Babylon. This is exile. The, 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 the people have been, been put in a place where they're, they're under oppression and there's a spiritual battle that's rising up. You see, Babel is equated with what? It's equated with rebellion against God, against spiritual forces of darkness. It's equated to um, the, the serpent, right? In Genesis chapter three and the forces of darkness that emerge end up in this place where, where the people are trying to make what's called a ziggurat, it's a tower in order that they would be able to interact with their gods. 
And so what we see is the battle is being set up isn't between the children of Israel and Pharaoh. It's not between the children of Israel and the Egyptians. The battle is being set up between God and Pharaoh. This week, we've given you some guidelines. And one of those guidelines for reading says that the, the, uh, the Egyptian pharaohs saw themselves as gods. They believed that they were God incarnate. They believed that they were gods. And the Egyptian people believed that their pharaohs were gods. And so it's already clear that, that what's going on is that there's going to be this battle between the force of darkness and God himself. So as we think about this as followers of Jesus, as we think about what's going on, and in this story, we see that God is blessing people. They're being fruitful. They're multiplying. They're carrying out the exact thing that God tells them to do, but then they find themselves in confusing circumstances. They're being oppressed. And now the, the threat against their children and the, the, what is going on? And there's these two Hebrew midwives that what is happening? It had to be very confusing. And we find ourselves sometimes in life in very confusing circumstances. And we're going, where is God in all of this? Where is God right now? I don't see God at work in the circumstances in which I live. And here's what's important to know. God is at work behind your confusion. God is at work behind your confusion. It doesn't seem like it, but it's happening. So in, in Exodus 1, 16 and 17, let's just zoom in here for a second. It says, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrews women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. And in response, we see God in verse 20, God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. These two faithful actors in God's story, Shifra and Pua, they were faced with dire circumstances. They had to choose, are we going to serve the God of the Hebrews or are we going to serve Pharaoh? Which God will we choose? And it says they feared God, that they had a, a holy reverence. They're like, okay, we can't do that. That's beyond, that, that is an immorality that is beyond anything that we could possibly participate in. So here's another thing just for you to consider. We don't have time to cover. Maybe in your small group, you'll break it down. You'll be like, okay, wait a minute. Did God bless them even though they lied to Pharaoh? Does God approve of lying? There's an ethical debate. There would be like, okay, well, well wait a minute. They, they were dishonest to to Pharaoh, like that wasn't the truth. But actually, I, um, I don't know. Does God approve that? Doesn't God approve that? These are the things you get to wrestle with. And some of you are like, I don't want to wrestle with that. <laughs> don't make me think. Just tell me the answer. I want you to think. I want you to wrestle. I want you to consider. I want you to go to old paradigms and wrestle your way through this and go, wait a minute. Is there something more to the story? And actually, if we're reading this, this is, this is supposed to be funny. I believe this is supposed to be funny. That the response as, as uh, Pharaoh sets it up to say, hey, we are going to 
make sure that we keep the children of Israel in captivity. And, and so we need to eliminate all the men. It's the women who rise up. And here, here we see that Pharaoh's grand plan to eliminate the male Hebrew babies is thwarted by two women with a sense of humor. And they go, they say to him, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the wives can get there. Your Egyptian women, they're wimpy. (laughs) But the Israelite women, they're strong. They just give birth. Even in the midst of his grand corruption, the story is playing out that Pharaoh is no match for the God of the children of Israel. And it's, going, it's even clear as it moves into chapter 2 and the deliverance of Moses. We've already read this. We're going to talk about stuff that we've already read. If you're not reading, I really want to encourage you to read because each week we're going to be talking about stuff that we've already read. We already know that Moses is born. We know that he's the deliverer. We know that he's encountered God as we continue on in the story. And what we're going to see is it's not apparent in your English text, but in the Hebrew text, it's really apparent that God is going to use women to thwart the plan of Pharaoh to eliminate the men. God's like, it doesn't matter to me. I'm going to make you look like an idiot. The goal is Pharaoh looks like an idiot. That's the point. That that he's no match for the God of the Hebrews. And then it leaves off in verse 22 with a cliffhanger that's going to point us into the rest of the story. And Pharaoh commanded all his people, okay, that didn't work. So now every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Again, kill the boys, but let the women live. And God flips that upside down. For us as followers of Jesus, we remember this. Confusing circumstances are not an indication of the final story. God's unfolding something right here. As you read this week, you, you really want to keep 22, like highlight and underline 22. If you're reading into this next week and you think Pharaoh and the Egyptians, if it's like, wow, this is unfair, like, like he's somehow a victim in this story, go back to this verse. Pharaoh is not a victim in this story. He is guilty. And then the very first plague ties to this verse. There's a, the one for free. Okay, that's just for showing up this weekend. <laughs> You're supposed to see that. There's something that happens in the first plague that directly ties to this verse. Pharaoh's getting what's coming to him. So it's important that we would know that. He's not somehow a victim, but, but as as. The, the opposition to God that's playing out in this story, there's a spiritual conflict that's happening and he is going to pay the price. For us, 
we need to remember that, that we just see the effects maybe of what's going on in the spiritual realm. We just see the things, we're confused, and, and we do know the end of the story. We spent last fall talking about the end of the story. Remember, we spent last fall um, talking about the book of Revelation, right? We, we talked about the book of Revelation, the end of the story, that, that the end of the story is written, but between now and the end of the story is not written, in other words, that you may find yourself in confusing circumstances today, but that doesn't mean that you'll be in the same place in, in tomorrow or next week or next month or next year or in five years or 10 years or 20. God's story is still unfolding. It's in play. It's in motion. And it's really important that we would keep that in mind that, that just because what's going on today in my world doesn't make sense, it, it's not an indication of where things are going to turn out. Often in our lives, we believe something that is fundamentally not true, and that is that good people should experience good circumstances, and bad people should experience bad circumstances. That's kind of how humanity thinks, and the Bible, if we know it, flips that upside down. Good people experience bad circumstances. Bad people experience good circumstances. It's part of living in a broken world. Uh, that is just part of that God's story unfolding, and it's our job to remain steadfast that God is still at work, even though the circumstances seem confusing. You see, while the final chapter is already written, your chapter is still playing out in God's story. Your chapter is still playing out. So as you work your way through this, um, as you work your way through Exodus it's important that we would allow the story to play out, not just in the Exodus, but in our lives. Allow the story to play out over time. And you'll remember back in the Revelation series, remember I was like, you can't possibly know. I probably yelled that at you. You can't possibly know the book of Revelation if you don't know the Old Testament. Remember that? You remember that? I was talking about the book of Revelation, the only way that we can understand it, there's not some golden key out there, and there's a lot of crazy out there on the book of Revelation, when in fact, it's all revealed in the Old Testament. It, it makes total sense. If you approach Revelation through the lens of the Old Testament, a super confusing book isn't so confusing. It makes total sense. Now, I was adamant of it last fall, and I've done a lot of work on it since then. And if you thought I was adamant of that last fall, you should see me now. But it's grown. And last week I said, hey, you, if you don't know the Exodus, you can't possibly know Matthew's gospel. And some of you were like, well, I don't know that I really believe that. Is, is that really true? Is that really possible? Yeah, we can know it-ish but not know it, know it. Not like, wow, this is amazing, know it. This is better than I thought, know it. This week, I'm going to tell you something even more. It's the New Testament. If I don't know the Old Testament, I don't really know the New Testament. You see, I used to think that I had to understand the, the New Testament. As a follower of Jesus, I had to understand the New Testament in order to rightly understand the Old Testament. But now I believe it's inverted. It's flipped upside down. If I understand the Old Testament, all of a sudden now it's going to give me new insight because guess what? Every single writer of the New Testament assumes it's not just John writing the revelation of Jesus. It's every writer, Paul, Every writer, Matthew, Luke, every writer in the New Testament assumes that you 
know the Old Testament. Now, I know about it, that you know it. Now, you don't need to become an ex- Exodus expert, but you need to know the grand story. There's going to be things we're going to give you along the way, little helpful things that go, okay, that helps me read the story. We're not going to ask you to dig down into all the details. Now, for those of you who, who love to dig down, my only caution is check your sources. Quality sources matter. Not everything on the internet is true. YouTube is a dangerous theological world. If your primary source is a YouTube video, check the source. Because there's a lot of crazy out there on the book of Exodus, just like there's a lot of crazy out there on the book of Revelation. So with that, check your sources. But there's some fun stuff to dig into. And then you get down into it and you dig all the way there and you're like, oh yeah, we have this conversation. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you're like, yeah, but that doesn't even matter to the story. It was just a fun little rabbit trail to chase down. So what we're going to do is we're going to keep you focused on the big story. And those of you who want to chase rabbits down holes, have at it. Have a great time. The rest of us, we're going to focus on the big picture and what God's story is unveiling along the way and ultimately how it points us towards the new exodus in Jesus. That's where we're getting to. Jesus is the final exodus. He is the way out. And and even though every week he's going to emerge in the story, in a couple weeks, we're going to see he's already in the story. He's, He's already there. You've already read that he's there. He's already appeared. You didn't even know it. He's already been there. So yes, it points us to Jesus, but we want to wrestle along the way. So as we follow Jesus in 2023, We know the God of the scriptures. We know the God of the story. So this week, all that's just trying to get you to to buy into reading the story, to get you excited about reading the story, to see what's unfolding, to notice things along the way. And so we gave you some guidelines this week to hopefully get you to say, okay, well, I don't even know how to begin to read in this kind of way. I, I, I was never taught really how to read. Anybody else? Yeah, I can read the words. I, I can read the words, but not how to read. Not how to look for themes, how to look for patterns, how to look for re- repeated words. And I especially was never taught how to read biblical narrative. I have a degree in this book. I was never taught how to read biblical narrative. And so it's important, like, if you feel like you struggle with this, welcome to the club, all right? We'll have a little self-help group later. It'll be great. (laughs) So here's what you need to know. You're going to be reading the setup of the first nine plagues, okay? The big exit comes in the 10th plague. Egyptian pharaohs believed they were gods. Look for the phrase, then the Lord said to Moses, okay? A little, little hint along the way, really key phrase, then the Lord said to Moses, the plagues are on areas of life. That, that were believed to be governed by the Egyptian gods, and the plagues are in three sets of three before the final plague. Look for the pattern, okay? That one, two, and three, four, five, and six, seven, eight, nine, that correspond to each other. Patterns aren't an accident, okay? Even if you just see the pattern, that's enough for now, okay? See the pattern. Look for the pattern. Look for phrases along the way. What we're going to do now, though, is um, the God of the grand story is worthy of our worship, and he's revealed himself to us 
in the person, Jesus. And so what we're going to do now is we're going to worship the God who's worthy of our worship. So I'm going to invite you to stand everywhere you can stand. Let me pray for us as we engage in worship. Father, we are so grateful that you are a God who loves us. You're a God who's for us in spite of the active opposition to us in this world. And so we pray that you would help us to keep our eyes open, our eyes focused on Jesus and what it looks like to live lives of following him. And in these moments, we need you even in our worship. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.